0: today first John um, chapter 1 starting um, we'll just read the, the whole passage down to verse 2 of chapter 2 so first John chapter 1 starting in verse 5 down to 2 two this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's pray. God, as we consider this text this morning, I just feel like I'm, we're standing just at that, just outside the throne of heaven, as we as we reflect on this passage. God, I don't, we don't understand fully what it means that you are our advocate, but God, I pray after today that we would know in a deeper way that we would believe in a deeper sense your advocacy on our behalf. God, may we see and know your heart toward us. Not as we want it to be, not as we think it might be, but Lord, as what your word actually says it is. And by faith, God, give us the grace to believe it. Lord, for this is our prayer we pray in Christ. Amen. Amen. So the last couple of weeks, we've looked um, at the truth that God is light. And we saw that there's no darkness in him. And the, and the past two weeks have been looking at the implications of that truth, that simple truth that God is light. So the first week, we looked at the implication about hypocrisy, about putting on a mask and the need for truth, the true Christian to remove the mask and walk in the light. Last week, we looked at the deception of the believer that how he can be somehow perfect, but the necessity of being perfect in Christ before God. But this week, I want us to turn our attention to the last objection from 1 John. Here we see in this section. It's, and you see it in verse 10. So he says, I'll just read it to you real quick. If we say, here's the last if we say of this section. So in verse 10 of John chapter 1, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I want us to address a, a reality that we just kind of swim in, in our culture. And it, it's called false guilt. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. If you haven't heard of it, just tune in. You'll hear about it someday. But I want to talk about the vanity that false guilt is. There was a person who coined the term false guilt. And his name was Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud. Okay? And you might think, well, you know, I didn't think we were talking about psychology. I didn't think we were talking about Sigmund Freud. It matters. Here's why it matters. Sigmund Freud, he, he's the one who coined the term false guilt. And he believed that all guilt was false. And he said that all guilt, he taught that all guilt was a bad thing. And he taught that it was a bad thing because there's no God in heaven. Basically what he would say. I mean, this is, you can go look it up, please. Do, do so. Test me on this. See if I'm, see if I'm right. He's actually much more frank and rude about it, I think, than I am. He, he taught that it was a bad thing because there's no God, so it meant that people were not actually guilty. There was no sense of condemnation. It can be called false guilt, functional guilt, neurotic guilt, punitive guilt, guilt feelings. And most people you talk to in the street, they would say that they generally classify guilt as a bad thing. You know why they classify guilt as a bad thing? Sigmund Freud. Thanks, Freud. Let me give you a case of it, though. Listen at this. And you hear this. You'll hear this all the time. Picture a, a lady. Let's call her Sally. Okay? I, heard, I was listening to a case study. But picture Sally commits a sin that's, that's just terrible. Okay, So terrible that she cannot forgive herself. This is what she says. She comes to you and she says, I just can't forgive myself. Do you know where that comes from? It comes from this idea of false guilt. Let me show you how. The concept of forgiving yourself has been so common in our society, and that many people, I would actually argue, are on like a treadmill of like, I can't forgive myself, I can't forgive myself. Pop psychology stresses the importance of forgiving yourself. But the real question is, have they really identified the problem? Have they really identified the problem? Maybe you're thinking, well, like, I've never heard anybody say that you need to talk to more people. That's what I would urge you to do. If you've never heard that, just go talk to somebody. Is, it, is this lady, is Sally's problem, if Sally's saying, I just can't forgive myself for this sin I committed, is it really the sense that she can't forgive herself? Is there a deeper solution? I would put forward to you that there are several ways And I'll just give you a couple that I think she needs to address. Could be. She may be expressing an inability or an unwillingness to grasp and receive God's forgiveness. That could be. Could be what she's doing. Or maybe like we saw two weeks ago, she may not or be, be unwilling to acknowledge the depth of her own depravity, which is hypocrisy. Or she may be trying to establish her own standards of righteousness and judging herself based upon those, which is legalism. And that's why she's saying she needs to forgive herself. Or maybe she's doing what we're seeing in 1 John chapter 10, or 1 John 1 10. She maybe have ascended the throne of judgment and declared herself to be the judge. And said, actually, I'm not worthy to be given forgiveness. I'm not worthy of this. I need to forgive myself. And in this case... I can't forgive myself is equivalent to saying, I'm in the role of judge, and I will dispense forgiveness as I decide. Such a person has convened the court, rendered a guilty judgment upon themselves, and now believes they must grant their own needed pardon. Okay? Now we turn to John, we're like, okay, Daniel, you set forward this case of this lady who says she can't forgive herself. But let's see where this comes from. Or where we see it, at least in the text. I would call this section, if you're taking notes, you can call this section, Unbelief, the epicenter of all sin. And we've seen John do this over and over again in verses 5 through 10. He gives us a claim, and then he get, takes us to a reality, and then he shows us the truth. And so, we, so we saw it once in, in verse 6. We saw, if we say we have fellowship with him, there's the claim. They lie and do not practice the truth, and the reality and the truth. And we see it again in verse 10. And then we finally see it in verse verse 8, and then we see it again in verse 10. So here's the claim of verse 10. Let's look at it. Let's hold it up. Here's the claim. We have not sinned if we say we have not sinned. So there's the claim. We have not sinned. I think there's a slide for it. There it is. Go one more. So There's, oh, never mind. Maybe a couple more. Should be another claim slide. It's Not going to be there. That's okay. Uh, Now, there's a slight distinction from what he's claiming here in verse 10 to what he said in verse 8. In verse 8, he said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The way that that's constructed, it's like he's saying that they became Christians and then they became perfect. But what they're claiming in verse 10 is we have never sinned. We've never sinned at all. They're doing exactly what Sigmund Freud does when he calls false guilt, false guilt. They're saying, that, that guilty feeling we have, that's just false. It's just a false construction of, of, of guilt. I'm not really guilty. You, you may feel guilty. And here's, here's what the psychologist or even the pop psychologist would say. You feel guilty because of childhood upbringing. You're not really guilty of anything. Or you feel guilty because of other people's expectations of you you're not really guilty of anything. Let me tell you, that's not true. False guilt is a constructed lie of worldly wisdom that is not good. Because it's not, it's not good for this reason. It's because it's false. So false guilt is false. And what I mean by that is we are actually guilty. There's a reality that we are actually guilty of judgment and punishment. And then listen to what John says the evaluation of this person is. The one who's basically saying, I'm not guilty of anything. It's all false. It's not true. I'm not really guilty. This is what he's saying of that person. If we say we have not sinned, I'm not guilty. I haven't sinned. This is what he says. We make him a liar and his word is not in us. So there's a reality. Here's the reality. He moves from claim into reality, which is the claim is we have not sinned. Here's the reality. You believe God's a liar. Now let me state the obvious: this person who's claiming this has no ability to make God a liar. No more than a child can stop the sun by holding their eyes over the, over, holding their hand over their eyes and not looking at the sun. John is not saying that we actually make God a liar. He is saying that these opponents are actually showing what is in them by their own confession. When they confess they haven't sinned, they're actually declaring their own theology. They're saying, we haven't sinned, there's no guilt, all the guilt, it's false guilt. Listen to what Romans would declare. I think it died. Is it back? Okay, sorry. They're looking at the book of Romans, which says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands... No one seeks after God, and John's evaluation of of this is you believe God is a liar. And as Romans would say, let God be true, though everyone were a liar, that that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. This is what happens every time believer and unbeliever experiences guilt. Since And I I love this quote. There was a guy I was reading, I think he hit it right on the head when he said this. He said, I hope the quote's up there. Yes. Since the unbeliever's conscience operates in the same way as a believer's conscience, the unbeliever's guilty conscience is also caused by his own personal sin before God, whether he admits it or not. Basically, what this guy is saying is that false guilt that you've constructed in your mind, that's a lie. That's not true at all. And he goes on and he says, this awareness that he is wrong and his sense of guilt, in fact, are designed by God to enable him to see his need for the Savior and drive him to him for forgiveness. Basically, what this guy is saying is the false guilt or this idea that we're seeing in verse 10 that we have not sinned. All of my guilt is false. It's not really true guilt. He's saying that's a lie. The guilt is meant to draw us to our knees. Listen to what he says the truth is of this person. This is the scary part. Verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I don't think there's a more stark, terrifying comment that John could make than that. Basically, if we're saying we have not sinned or all this guilt we're experiencing, it's false guilt. We make him a liar and his word is not in us. John is saying that this person does not have the word in them. That they are so warped to the world, so given over to sin, that the word of God does not even dwell in them. And I I just want to encourage you. If you're sitting here today and you're like, I'm not a believer. I I don't really believe in Jesus. I want you to know. That the general sense of guilt that this secular society tries to push off from you and say, it's not really from you, it's from your parents, it's from your upbringing, it's from whatever else it may be, I'm saying that's a lie. And that's not true. It's not an accident that you feel guilty. It's not something brought on from childhood experience. It is a reality of your life under sin. Let me say that again. It is a reality of your life under sin. It's not to be minimized, it's not to be ignored, it's meant to be repented of. So we see, we've seen in verse 6, the hypocrisy. We've seen in verse 8, the perfectionism. And now in verse 10, we see the complete denial. The complete unbelief that there is no sin, the refusal to acknowledge sin. But listen to what John says to that person, to, to, to them. He encourages them in verse two, or verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, as a good pastor does, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Wait, what? You just said, you just over and over again said all these areas that we could potentially sin. And then he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Here's the thing we need to understand about sin. Sin... Though a temptation is understandable, it's never permissible. Okay? And john that's why John says, after all these, this whole lump sum of ways that we could sin, he doesn't say, well, you have had a real hard time, so it's understandable that you're living in perfectionism. It's understandable that you're living in hypocrisy. It's understandable that you're living in deniable of sin, denial of sin. No, he doesn't say that. He's writing because it's never excusable. John is clearly saying, he is writing that these believers would not walk in sin. We should never take a posture of accepting sin because it's understandable. We should never take a posture of accepting sin because it's understandable. What we need to see, then you probably wonder, well, like, okay, Daniel... You're saying that there's all these temptations to sin of hypocrisy and perfectionism and denial of sin. Well, wouldn't it make a sense that like if we just sin more, that grace would abound more? Listen to what Paul says in Romans 6. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. That's what he says. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? James, James Montgomery Boyce, he said this. I really appreciated what he said about it. He said that, how does the assurance of forgiveness actually lead to holiness? He asked the same question. Is not the opposite the case? If we know that we're forgiven in advance, will we not feel free to sin? The objection sounds logical, but it is not, he says. He goes on and he says, in fact, it is contradicted by human experience. Actually, the knowledge of such a great love and of such an undeserved forgiveness makes the Christian earnestly desirous not to sin against him or them. The person who truly understands grace knows that a response of sin is never appropriate. And John lays forward to us. He's writing to us so that we may not sin. But as G.K. Chesterton says, It is always simple to fall. There are an infinite number of angles at which one falls, but only one by which one stands. So with all these different paths of sin, John's laying out for us, okay, if you you can sin, these are ways that you can sin, but I'm writing that you may not. But this is what he says in verse 1, because John's a good pastor and he knows what to do. He knows that that's not going to be their situation. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But then he qualifies it. But if anyone does sin, he knows that they will eventually sin. He doesn't give any exceptions for it. He doesn't give any feel goods about it. He says, I'm writing that you may not sin, but if you do, here's what you do. This is what you do. And again, we see, we're going to see the true Christian, this is what the true Christian does. Rather than Claiming, Letting the claim be the thing. There should be a slide about evidence. I just really want this to be pounded into your head. Because this is is the difference for John. John's giving us an evidence. And then a reality. And then the truth. John knows that these little children will indeed sin. John knows what you and I are like. And here's the evidence. When we sin. Not if we sin. When we sin. So I thought you said, Daniel, I thought you just said that we shouldn't sin. Yes, that's true. <laughs> yes, that's true. Amazing grace drives us to know that we should not sin. But John knows us. He knows what's in our hearts. He knows what comes out of us, and he knows that when we sin. Now, I want, I want to set up a scene for you, if I can. Picture with me a courtroom, a big courtroom, big pillars, Picture a courtroom. And the judge in this position is God the Father. And what this text is going to show us is that Jesus Christ is our defense attorney. But there's another character we haven't talked about thus far. Actually, John hasn't even brought him up yet. It's actually Satan. That Satan actually is the prosecuting attorney in this courtroom. Now we don't do this based off of how we feel. We don't come and we say, Well, I think it's this way. Scripture's very clear. Roman, or uh, Revelation in Revelation twelve, Satan is called. His name is actually the accuser. The accuser of the brothers. Romans or Revelation twelve, ten says this, For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Who accuses? This is his role. This is his task. This is what he does. Who accuses them day and night? for our God he's oftentimes referred to in scripture as just the accuser of the brothers and that's what he does all day long he accuses and we see there's a picture in in Job turn real quick to Job in your bible just just real quick if you don't know where Job is you can go to the index at the front Job's kind of an obscure book Job chapter 1 and you might be like, well, Daniel, why, how are you seeing this? Okay, you're saying that Satan, he's an accuser. But there are moments in Scripture sometimes that the, that the author kind of peels back the, the curtain of heaven for a second. And we can see in. And here's one of these moments. In Job chapter 1, starting in verse 6, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. I want to be clear about something as I'm saying this. At this point, you may have many questions like, why is Satan in the courtroom of heaven? Or uh, what situations happens that Kate, Satan can just walk, waltz up to God? And my answer is, I don't know. And if anyone says, I do know, they're wrong. <laughs> because they're either wrong or they're just making wild assumptions based off of the scriptures. Because the scriptures don't tell us. But what it does tell us is this is a reality. This is what happens. Listen in verse 6 again. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan's answer to the Lord, Satan answered to the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth. From walking up and down on it. Listen to what Satan's even response is. He doesn't come and say, well, I I have a a side gig that I go and do. No. His job is accusing the brothers. His responsibility, the thing he has taken up the mantle of, is to accuse the brothers. Of what, you may say. Here's the utter folly of false guilt. False guilt assumes that it's false. False. But what Satan is showing us, even from this text, it actually, is that we are guilty. That he comes and he says, this one, right here, Daniel, he is guilty. Look at the way he sins. Look at what he's like. His judgment over believers is simply pointing to our own rebellion and pointing out the fact that we deserve condemnation. There is no such thing as false guilt. There is only a sense of legal guilt of the charge. A ground for complaint. Satan can't come and lie before the Lord in that way. He's simply pointing to what is reality. Guilty, 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 guilty. Before all humanity, guilty. And this is extremely bad news. But listen to what John says. He doesn't leave us there. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So there's the evidence. When we sin, here's the reality. Christ is our advocate. Now let's be clear. The scriptures at this point do not say, Take up your own cause before Satan. Go and bind Satan by yourself. No, 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 it doesn't say that. It says that there is one who stands in the throne room of heaven and actually is our own defense attorney. We don't don't name it and claim it. We don't bind Satan in that way. We stand condemned, but our Savior stands and defends our cause. So what is an Advocate? The, the word is used several times in the in the scriptures, and one one is used in john fourteen sixteen in referring to the Holy Spirit he says this, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, another advocate to be with you forever so that's not necessarily what what it means here because because what it really means there's actually more of like a legal aspect to it. Some definitions they would say this: one who is called to someone 's aid in a, in a few places. In pre-Christian and extra-Christian literature, we actually see the word being used as on, on their behalf or as their mediator or their helper or intercessor in that way. <laughs> one, one definition, I liked it. They actually cautioned from translating it to be an attorney because they said attorneys always lie. I'm sorry if you're an attorney. That was just what it said. I, I kind of chuckled at that because they said it's actually probably should be attorney, but careful translating that because every culture understands an attorney to be a professional liar. Sorry if you're an attorney. I don't mean that to like throw anything at you. Just, I thought that was interesting because they said that the most accurate way to translate this would actually be an attorney. But they said we don't understand attorneys because they're actually just professional liars. That's what they're called in some societies. So sorry if that's you. I did, I'm not meaning that to be an uh, arrow at you. But that's just what it said. I thought it was interesting. And I think we're right in seeing the legal defense on behalf of his people. Listen to what he says. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does, we have an advocate with the Father. We have one who stands before the Father on our behalf. Notice the text does not say we have an advocate once we've cleaned ourselves up. He doesn't say, oh, you have an advocate once you become sorry enough. He says that if anyone sins... In the moment of our most need, frailty, and in the midst of weakness, we have an advocate. We have one who speaks a better word on our behalf. So when Satan is crying out, guilty, 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 what does Jesus say? He doesn't say, well, that's true. Because it is true. No, no, no. Christ Jesus is called the righteous one. Most literally, the way you would look at that at the very end, and you can see it in your text, it says, Jesus Christ could be called, semicolon, the righteous one. He's not crooked. He's not seeking ill gain. He's not lying. He's completely pure and righteous in every way. And what does he say of them? What does he say when our defense, forgiven? As Satan cries out, guilty, 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 Christ Jesus looks and says, forgiven, forgiven. Charles Wesley in his, in his hymn, Arise My Soul, he says, he ever lives above for me to intercede. His all redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for all our race, his blood atoned for all our race. And sprinkles now the throne of grace. Hebrews 7, reflecting on a similar reality, he says, the former priests, many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever, because he's resurrected. And then in verse 25, he says, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. So what's Hebrews saying? It's saying that because he is raised from the dead, because he is the priest that lives forever to make intercession for his people, he can actually advocate on our behalf. What this means is that Christ is currently sitting at the Father's right hand. And every single time you sin, he's not saying, he did it again. I thought he would do better this time. No, he says, that one's mine. He says, forgiven. He doesn't say, you're right, Satan. You're right, that one is wicked. No. He knows our status. He knows we are guilty. And you know what he says? Forgiven. So what does this mean for Christian maturity? What does it mean to be a Christian who is mature? In light of this text, what's this mean? It means this. That Christian maturity is not a destination. Okay? Okay. It's not a destination which means that nobody ever arrives at this location. It means that Christian maturity actually has more to do with growth in true sensitivity to sin in one's own life and an intense desire to eliminate all things which displease God. I say this only because Christ is saying he is our advocate. So to boast in the progress of the Christian life is to ignore what John has been saying to us. And I love what Jim Boyce, he goes on to say. He says, On the contrary, a growth in holiness will mean a growth in a true sensitivity to sin in one's own life. And an intense desire to eliminate from life all that displeases God. Instead of boasting in the progress, the person will be increasingly ready to acknowledge sin and seek to eliminate it. And I bring this up about Christian maturity because I see this so askew, so often. I see Christian maturity being about education or about, well, I don't know enough. Christian maturity is not about knowing enough. It's actually about acknowledging our own sin and confessing it. So why? Why can Jesus Christ be called the righteous here? And now we see the truth in verse 2 of chapter 2. It says this, He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Here's the truth. Jesus does not look at us and say, forgiven. Because we've done enough. Because we feel good about ourselves. He is actually the wrath-bearing sacrifice. Every time he looks at us, he doesn't say, well, he should have got his stuff better together. He's been a Christian... You've been a Christian for 20 years now. You should know better. That's not what he says. So when Satan cries out, guilty, 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 guilty. You know what he says? He doesn't say, well, Lord, just overlook this one. Look, overlook this one, one time. This was just a whoopsie daisy. No, what he says is he says, overlook this one by looking upon me. By looking upon the wrath that I bore on his behalf. By that, by the word propitiation, what we mean is that that Christ has saved us from God's wrath towards sin. And he has simultaneously made us pure. He is the atoning, the covering sacrifice. He pleads on behalf of sinners. Not encouraging his father, come on Lord, we've accepted a couple more, just a few more unjustly. That's not what he says. He says justly because of what I have done, accept these. He actually pleads with his father for what he has done on their behalf. He is the propitiation for his people. Not simply an advocate, but an advocate who provides the means to come forward. Five bleeding wounds he bears, says Wesley. Received on Calvary, they pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh forgive him, they cry. Forgive him, oh forgive them, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. I think Wesley captures well this advocacy of Christ. Forgive him. Forgive him, nor let that ransom sinner die. But why? Let me ask you a question, though. Okay, but why, why the wrath? Daniel, you talk about propitiation, like, why can't we make it non-wrath? Why can't Jesus just say, ah, well, I died for him. He's a nice guy. He should do better. Here's why. Jared Wilson, he said very helpfully about this. In talking about a wrathless cross... He says this, he says, the devil loves this development of a wrathless cross. Because if he can get us to stop thinking about God's wrath at the cross, he can get us to stop thinking about how our sin is an offense to God. Which means he can get us distracted from God's holiness and thus our need for salvation. He is the propitiation, the wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sin. And not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. I want to look at that last part, the sins of the whole world, just real quick. And I found two quotes very, very helpful in this regard. The first one goes like this, and I, I just think it's helpful. When we get to hard, hard places in the scripture, we should always go and rely upon other men who come before us. We should never just stand there by ourselves. And this is what they say. He says, John goes on to say that Jesus has dealt not only with our sins but also the sins of the whole world. Now, some have suggested by this that, that this means that all people will be saved whether or not they repent of their sins and trust Jesus. What he's saying is, so, so universalists who say that all people will be saved everywhere. Jesus' blood, it was atoned for everyone, so we're all going to heaven. That's what they say, and they use verses like this to defend them. Let's be clear, when we come to passages of scripture like this, like a key, we don't, we don't interpret the Bible in light of this verse. We interpret the Bible in, and then come to this verse. Okay? So like a, like a keyhole, we don't just like peek through the one little keyhole. We look at the keyhole, like we look at the whole door and then see the keyhole. If that makes sense. Maybe it doesn't. That's okay. This is what they say, though. This is what he goes on to say. However, the burden of this letter is to discern true believers from ones. John's letter would be pointless if all were redeemed anyway. John has declared various groups of people to be out of fellowship with God, not recipients of the propitiating work of Christ. He is then not contradicting himself here. The point, rather, is that Jesus, here's the point, rather is that Jesus is the one sacrifice available for the world. The message of this salvation is not to be restricted to one group, but is to be proclaimed boldly to all people everywhere. And another quote I found very helpful. He says, we might suggest that Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. But because his death was sufficient to deal with the sins of the whole world, but because his sacrifice does not become effective until people believe in it. So what he's saying is he's saying it's, it's sufficient to deal with the sins of the whole world, but it will not become effective until people have believed upon it. Okay? We're going to see that over and over again in First John. May I encourage you, as we, as we close down and as we consider the end of this, this section, consider this. I found this last quote very helpful from Dane Ortland. He says this. He says, Do not minimize your sin or excuse it away. Raise no defense. Simply take it to the one who is already at the right hand of the Father, advocating for you on the basis of his own wounds. Let your own righteousness in all your darkness and despair drive you to Jesus Christ, the righteous, in all his brightness and sufficiency. So as we consider, as you consider even looking at this text and seeing your own sin, I, just consider, I, I urge you to stop making excuses. To stop making excuses and actually allow the advocacy of, of Christ Jesus to become effective in that way. So as we've seen, we've seen that unbelief is the epicenter of all sin. And we've seen then, moving into that, moving on, we saw that Christ is indeed our advocate. So next week we're going to be continuing on in verse 3. And we're going to go down to verse 6 next week. With that, um, we're going to move into a time of response. So if there's anything, um, I just want to urge you as you consider responding. To what you've heard and what we've seen in the scriptures today. Um, I just want to urge you, if the Lord's prompting you to do something, to not take it lightly, to not gloss over it, but actually to take it serious. So if he's prompting you to do something or if you, you're feeling guilty here this morning, there is cleansing, and it comes in Christ, and it comes in, in the blood of our Savior. spilled for us. So take just a minute and reflect upon what we've heard. Uh, And then we will uh, close.